You are listening to the Hoops Fix podcast, the official voice of the UK's largest basketball website. Visit hoopsfix.com for exclusive news, videos and more. Welcome to episode 34 of the Hoops Fix podcast with me, your host Sam Nita, full-time British basketball advocate. I hope you all had a good Christmas break. Um, I almost took a break from this, but I was like, no, we want to be consistent with the releases and get them out weekly to help it grow. Uh, We did uh, surpass the mini milestone of 25,000 downloads last week, which was an awesome milestone to hit. Um, But it reiterated to me that for us to really grow this thing, I have to release them consistently, which means weekly. Uh, I'm aiming roughly for a Tuesday at the moment, but some days like today, it comes out a little bit later. Um... But yes, I hope you did have a good Christmas break. Uh, for this week's show, we spoke with Joe Forber, uh, the main man behind the Manchester Magic program. Um, you know, Joe has been involved with the game for decades on decades, so has so much valuable insight to share. Um, and it was really cool to hear a bit more about his story. You know, how he first got involved with basketball, how he first got involved with coaching, his first involvement with a with a club program, and then of course um, the Manchester Magic program and how that came about. Um, you know, working with John Amici, um, the facility up in Manchester, how that, that all uh, ended up getting built. But yeah, so much really, really cool insight. And also a few little exclusive tidbits of information uh, he revealed towards the end about things that are potentially on the horizon for Manchester basketball uh, moving forward. Um, so definitely well worth a listen. As always, would love to hear any thoughts, feedback, or whatever else you may have. I'm contactable at all times on my email address, sam at hoopsfix.com. Or you can find me on all the social media channels at hoopsfix. Um, would love to hear any thoughts and feedback that you do have. And as I always ask, if you could take uh, a quick 20 seconds out of your day to get onto, get onto your podcasting app and give us a rating and review, ideally on iTunes, uh, it will help the podcast grow far and wide, which is of course one of the reasons why we're doing it, to help spread the word of British basketball. So if you could do that as a mini Christmas present to me, it would be hugely appreciated. Anyway, I'm going to stop talking, uh, have a listen, uh, let me know what you think. Here's my conversation with Joe Forber. Okay, we're honoured to be here today with Joe Forber. Joe, welcome to the show. Ah, uh, good to be here. It's a bit early in the morning, but never mind. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I've wanted to have this kind of a longer form conversation with you for a long time. Um, there's so, there's this, you're kind of this mythical name within British basketball that, you know, a lot of people talk about. But actually to find your, your story going all the way back to the start is, is a, a very difficult thing to do. So I'd love to begin there and kind of um, talk about your, your early involve, involvement with the game and how you, how you first got involved with basketball. Well, anybody that uh, knows me well, Sam, will know that I'm a rugby man, really. Uh, It's not a good start to the interview, but never mind. Um, Because uh, I went to a rugby school. I was born in a rugby town, St. Helens. I knew nothing about basketball until I started at a one-year college course at Carnegie College. I can remember doing about four sessions on basketball. Uh, I hadn't got a clue, didn't understand what was going on. Um, couldn't get couldn't get to grips with the game at all. Uh, and then I started teaching, uh, and it was an all boys school. And when I started teaching, there was a guy in there, um, head of German, very good friend, eventually, who had a, an under nineteen boys team that played in a local league i don't think it happens now but in those days it is i'm going back a long time now so um and he came to me i was a new guy on the block pe 
And he said, um, can you help me? Because I don't know what I'm doing. And I said, no, I can't help you because I haven't got a clue about basketball. <laughs> uh, but I said, I'll find out more. And that led to me trying to get the basics of the game, going on courses, finding out what was happening in the local area. Uh, it was in Manchester, basically, and a little bit of Cheshire. Um, helping the guy out and then pursuing basketball at that school lower down and in effect learning my trade um, from the bottom uh, just by graft really um, and, and getting some background to the game which obviously has continued into uh, into club basketball. So uh, uh, how old were you at this point and what kind of what kind of year are we talking about um, in terms of the timelines? Uh, I think I started teaching in about 1969, I uh, would have been 22, 23. Um, I'd done a four-year course at university, which was uh, academic. Went to Carnegie for a year, it was a fantastic uh, year for me, uh, absolutely loved it. Um, so I, I, I was the new guy on the block and I was uh, young and thrusting and uh, into sport completely. I did a lot of rugby, obviously, it had been a rugby school. So I was pretty young. And then, you know, you said that you um, looked up various courses and kind of tried to absorb knowledge and find knowledge. Like, you know, uh, in that era, um, what did you do to, to sort of gain that knowledge? What were the resources that were available to, to learn about basketball, to learn how to teach it, to learn how to coach it? Well, courses I can remember um, in the local area, there were guys running courses. I can't even remember what they were termed now, but coaching courses, not refereeing courses. Um, uh, there was a guy in Stockport called Jim Benison who was running courses, and I can remember going to Jim's courses. I can remember going up to Scotland on a week's course because it was the only one I could find. Um, so I was into, I was getting into it uh, at that stage, um, and and really, really wanted to make a mark. Um, unfortunately, um, uh, there was a, a low, still there, a local league in Manchester, um, uh, a men's league, and we then entered a team in that men's league, which consisted of staff members and the older boys at the school, and we, just so happens that we had one staff member. It was very, very good and played quite a high level and he was past it, but he, he was very good. Uh, I can remember having a, um, a German uh, exchange uh, teacher who was very good. Uh, and so we did pretty well in that league. Uh, I was playing pretty badly, but I was playing as best I could. But the, it was great for the kids, for the older kids, because they had access to uh, competitive basketball. So I was kind of learning on the floor there. Um, and then I got into knowing basketball people uh, in the Manchester area and in knowing them, talking to them. Um, Graham Williams was a big influence. I'll come back to Graham later. Um, he was a, a local school teacher and I got to know him well and it, it kind of led from there. At what point did it become, did it switch from being, you know, you're going to help out a friend and so you need to learn a little bit more about the game to be able to teach uh, to, you know, you really you love this sport and you, you want to become, you know, you want to leave your mark on it and you want to become very good at coaching. Yeah, pretty early, I think, Sam. Um, and I think that the thing that uh, changed me on that is that although it was a rugby school, that doesn't mean that all boys um, wish to play rugby. It's not a suitable game for a lot of boys. 
the head teacher, who was a great guy, but he had this thing about no soccer at all, no football will ever come onto this site. So basketball was kind of played by the lads. And I found that they responded really, really well to an alternative sport. Uh, and I think that kind of pulled me, not exactly away from the rugby, but it pulled me in that direction because of the response of the, of the, of the kids that I was, um, I was teaching at that time. So I think, I think that change from rugby to basketball, it was never 100%. I, I think it happened pretty quickly. I think I got involved in the game and enjoyed it. I enjoyed coaching and enjoyed finding out what the game was about and the rules and completely different from any game I'd known before. Contact situation was really strange. So I had a lot to learn. Uh, still have a lot to learn, but I had a lot to learn in those days. So I think the changeover was pretty quick. And then when you say that you... Um you you know you like that it could reach out to to the boys in a different way to to rugby kind of you know what was it specifically you mean in terms of a sort of developmental uh for them turning into young men or was it something else like um could you be you know a little more specific about what it was that you you liked about it i think it was because it was skill based and uh rugby Obviously, it's skill-based, um, no question about it, but it's also that it's, it's a physical confrontation between two sides, and you can't get away from that on the rugby field. Um, but when I got into basketball, I realised that it was, it was fundamentally based on skill because of a little contact. Um, and I like that side of it. I like the fact that you could go into a gym with a group of boys and... Um, prepare a session that was skill-based and expect that at the end of that session the lads you were teaching would be better in terms of skill than uh, than they were at the beginning and obviously over a season that's significant so I, I, I think I think it was skill and movement uh, up and down the floor which I like, I like that movement um, uh, it's a great game to watch at the highest level because of of the up and down uh, I like American college basketball I like the intensity there um, so I think it was based on skill and then for you personally um, was it always about the teaching side of things how much uh, of your own playing happened like were you playing a lot did you get into playing it yourself a lot or was it more the focus was always on the coaching side of things on the coaching side, Sam, never pretended to be uh, a half-decent player. Just played a little bit at Manchester League. Um, so I, I wouldn't pretend uh, anything in that direction. I just I just like coaching. I like teaching. Um, I always wanted to be a teacher, uh, as did my wife. And um, so I never, had, I never thought about any other career, um, uh, even from a, a very young age when I was at school. Um, so basically, it was the, it was the coaching side that uh, I found attractive. And so, around that time, what was the lay of the land of basketball in England, uh, British basketball in general, kind of, uh, what were the structures, the competitive structures that were in place from kind of, you know, junior through to senior level? It's a good question, Sam. I'm not quite so long, long time ago, of course. <laughs> um, uh, there was a senior league, um, and I'm not sure it was Budweiser or it was even before that, um, and I can remember a Manchester team being in that senior equivalent of BBL League. Uh, Manchester United were around at that time with um, with a senior team. Manchester Giants were around with a senior team. 
obviously both playing in the Manchester area, two different venues, um, and uh, the crowds were very good. Yeah. Um, I can remember going to the Manchester Arena to see, um, I think it was the first TV game that was played there um, a long time ago. And it was absolutely packed out. We're talking about 15,000 people now at a, at a basketball game. Um, so there was an attraction there of teams to watch. I'm not quite sure where, what, where England basketball was in terms of age group basketball. I'm sure there was some going on. Yeah. Um, yes, I know there was because... Um, a gentleman, and you probably know this guy, uh, Sam, uh, uh, called Roy Packham. Yeah, I know Roy. Yeah. Um, Crystal Palace. Yeah, Crystal Palace, yeah. And um, when I went from school coaching to club coaching, I was actually involved in Cheshire at that time, although I was still in Manchester. I was actually working in Cheshire with Mike Burton. Um, the guy who was dominant in those days was Roy Packham. And he really, really was dominant. Um, and um, got to know him in strange kind of story, which I can relay to you if you want. Yeah, um, relay the story. Um, well, I've got, I've got a little thing about... Uh, we've had a pretty good success story uh, at our place for, for a long time. Um, not so much in the last two or three years, but before that. Um, but... The number of people have actually been to the club and uh, and sat down and asked us um, what did we do and how did we do it and what was the sequence. Um, I probably can't count on one hand, which I find disappointing. Um, so in those days uh, with Roy, and I'm, I'm maybe maybe 35 years now, um, I was in Cheshire with Mike Burton for just forming a national league club, age group club. I think it was under 17 at that time. And uh, I sat down with Mike uh, and talked him through. What do we do now? We don't. We've got a few players, but not very good, and we need to sort of venue out and all of this stuff that you you need to go through when you start a club. Um, and uh, we decided we'd um, have a chat with Roy because he was doing it all. So we got in the car, went down to London, uh, took him out for a meal, uh, picked his brain um, in terms of why he was so dominant. Um, came back home and we were into it to that extent that we would actually do that and that in a sense was our starting point okay this guy's doing it all um, uh, we can we can select certain things and uh, um, and move on from there um, I'm disappointed that more people haven't come to the club and said uh, in the right way I don't I don't mean this to sound conceited but how did you do it? Where did you start? Um, Amici Basketball Centre. How did that come about? Yeah. Very few people have been to see us about that. So. But anyway, Roy, Roy was very helpful, I have to say. So what, in terms of the advice that Roy, that Roy gave you, uh, you know, to set up your own, your own thing, what, is there anything in particular that, that stands out that you remember that you've kind of carried forward uh, you know, to this day? Yeah. Hard work. Um, it wasn't... The chat with Roy wasn't a technical chat. It was more, um, what do you do on a on a daily, weekly basis that has enabled you to be so dominant? And I don't don't know if you know how dominant he was, Sam, but he really was, um, and used to used to clean up everything there. Um, and it was hard work. Uh, and I can remember now to this day, asking him, how often do you work out with your boys? And he said, oh, we go four times a week. 
and ooh, that this was um, unusual, it might be unusual, not, not so unusual these days we did academies, but certainly in a lot of club basketball now, that would be unusual even now. Um, and he was working at different venues and kids were traveling on the train to get to his sessions because he was so dominant. And, and that's the thing I remember, how much time he was putting into um, his role as a coach and how much time the kids and the parents must have been putting in. And we took that back with us. Uh, and I'm not saying that we could then start immediately or we did start immediately um, working out four times a week. That wasn't the case, but that came across very, very strongly. I know it wasn't the technical side. It was the, um, the graft and the passion and the ambition um, that came across. So at that point, was that um, was that the point that you made the transition from teaching in schools to uh, to club basketball? Yeah, um, I knew Mike Burton very well. He was doing a lot of good work in uh, Ellesmere Port. Uh, very good friends, and um, we got together and decided we were going to start a club. Uh, it was actually based over there, as I remember, but there were Manchester uh, lads, in the sub-sub lads I knew from Manchester, some lads that Mike had, um, particularly from his school team, which which was very strong, um, and we put them together, entered the leagues, uh, and it moved on from there, and at some stage it changed because I went back to Manchester, and I can't exactly remember, I, was, I don't think I was there very long with Mike before, going back into Manchester and, if you like, starting again. Um, so what was that club called in, in Cheshire that you started with Mike? I think it was called Ellesmere Port. Oh, no, it wasn't. It was called something Panthers. Uh, might have been Ellesmere Port Panthers. Okay. If I get that one wrong, I'll, I'll hear off Mike. Um, <laughs> but, um, yeah, it, it was definitely based in Ellesmere Port. And how long, how long were you with that club for before you uh, returned to Manchester? You know, I don't, I don't know exactly now. Maybe two or three years. Um, okay. And I think that Mike, when I went to Manchester, went back to Manchester, I think Mike kept it going. There was an issue. We never, we never, it wasn't a fallout at all. It was just a kind of parting of the ways. And I went back to Manchester um, and he carried on there. So I don't think it was very long before uh, that happened. And so culturally, um, at that time, what was the uh, public's perception of basketball uh, was it in the, you know, you said that uh, the crowds at the senior games were, were very impressive. Mm. and um, But, like, you know, to the average person on the street, you know, what sort of awareness levels did they have of basketball? What were the, you know, the, 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 young, the young players that were coming into your program? How were they finding out about basketball? Who were the role models? What were the, you know, how was it all, what was the kind of um, the landscape uh, within the sport? Yeah, I think the role, well, first of all, there was um, within Manchester, and Cheshire, where I was based, where I was teaching, um, there were school leagues. Um, uh, and there are no school leagues now in Manchester. There are school games, but there are no home and away school leagues, significant competition. Um, it was much better in those days. So in terms of the boys coming into our programme, when, when I got back to Manchester, um, there were schools playing. So... Um, obviously we could um, select boys from those schools and attract them and uh, as I recall there was very little competition for our uh, f- uh, for our club in those days for our age group club in those days um, so there were, there were kids available uh, it might have been and probably was the second sport for a lot of the boys uh, particularly coming after soccer 
I'm possibly coming after rugby. Um, role models, um, a lot of very, very good uh, American players in those days. Um, as I look back now, both both clubs, both uh, Giants and, and United, I think United were in maybe for four or five or six years and, and I was attached to that club, but the Giants were uh, in opposition there. Um, excellent American players. Uh, and I think they were all models for any for any kids that were going to see the games. Where do you sit on the the kind of debate about you know having having strong Americans uh, in in our league or leagues and and then but then also retaining spots for British talent and and making space to to have the British guys be the role models like um, you know how important do you think it is to have the British players that are playing at the highest level that are, that are the stars of the league compared to the import players or do you think that actually it's more just about the quality of the player and having the better players uh, in positions where you know the younger players coming through can see them. Yeah, well, it's easy for me to say, uh, Sam, um, there should be more spots available for English players because I'm into that. I'm into player development and English player development. Um, but I think we're a long, long way away from that being that changing significantly. Um, it, it, fundamentally, it will change when English players are good enough to come into that league. Uh, it's a good profession for them um, financially. Um, and at the moment, that isn't the case. It's no good running away from that. Your top, your top cream uh, go elsewhere, and I think that will continue. Uh, your top juniors will go to the States. I think that will continue, no matter what you say. Um, uh, more, obviously, more the States than in Europe, uh, because the game is simply bigger, and um, there's more opportunities. American college basketball uh, is great. I like it. I'm not saying it's perfect, but um, and the education, I'm not saying that's perfect, but um, that's a great target for young kids. And I th so I think your top level, you're going to lose, and you can't expect clubs to say, "I'm going to play these English players," if they're not competitive and if it's very easy to get other players, foreign players quite cheaply at the moment, uh, who are much, much better. So I think in theory, it, it, most people in England will, would say, let's get let's get Maureen's kids in there. But they have to be good enough to take a spot in a roster in a competitive league. And I, I, there's a lot of good things about BBL. I know it gets a bad rap, but I think there's a lot of good things about it. Um, and I think we're a long, long way from, from that change, Sam. What do you think it would take to make those changes? I knew you were going to ask me this. And, <laughs> um, I, I haven't got an answer to all the problems in basketball. Yeah. Um, it's the million pound question, I right? I don't know. I'll come back to that later. Or, or okay. Again. That, but that's a question that um, I'm sure people in BBL would, would find an answer. Let me have a think about that. Okay. Um, so then, you know, talking, just staying on the topic of uh, British talent. You know, you've now been around the game for you know years and years and years. Uh, how would you compare what you're seeing now coming through the ranks at, at Manchester um, compared to you know back then when you were first getting into the game and kind of the years since? Like uh, the comparison of the talent levels and the ability of the kids. Um, where would you? Yeah, what would you say compared to the, comparing the two? Yeah. Um... It's interesting stuff here. Uh, when the, when our club was at its most successful, 
Um, and it was a long period, Sam. I, I guess I'm as proud of that as anything else that we've done in basketball. It wasn't a short term, two or three years. We've got a couple of good teams and so on. So it, we, we built it on very good foundations. Um, we had good players and possibly more talent then than we have now. Uh, there, was a, there was a period when we had um, quite a few big guys, six, nine, six, ten, seven foot guys that we haven't had for some years. I could throw out some names. Andy Thompson was there. Uh, Phil Waite was there. Ben Ease was there. Quite a few. We don't seem to have that talent now. But I think I think we're making pro. I feel we're making progress in terms of youth basketball. And I think there's been a significant difference between North and South. Uh, because when we were at our, our most successful, at some stage during the season, whether it was a, a cup semi or a cup final or a playoff, we had to meet Southern teams. Yeah. And on the whole, we met Southern teams with much more physical talent than we had, significantly more physical talent, but pretty poorly coached, I have to say. And I think our coaching at that time at the club was superior to what was going on down south. I think that's changed. Um, I think it's changed in the south. Uh, I think there are some very fine coaches now in the south coming through, relatively young. I can't mention any names. but um, And I, th- I think overall, um, southern age group basketball is improving because you've got that talent you've always had that talent you continue to have that talent and the coaching is much much better than it used to be in the old days in the north i don't think it's improved at all across the board um i'm not talking about our club in particular now but i'm talking about basically midlands upwards um i I, i'm i think at the moment the strength is with the south uh, unless the coaching improves, uh, National League coaching improves in the north. I think it will go more so to the south. We're trying to hang in there um, and do a pretty good job of hanging in there. But competition is better from southern teams and that is good. It really is good for the game. So I think you've got that difference between north and south. I, I, I like what I'm seeing with uh, a lot of southern teams now at the final fours and a lot of... Um, Coaches down there, I think, are doing a terrific job. And I think it's shown to a certain extent with the England programmes because a lot of those coaches are attached to the England programmes and I think um, that's helping as well. Roy Packham, always, uh, when he's always talking about the sort of the state of junior basketball, um, he's always fighting for moving back to a sort of true, a true national league where throughout the course of the season, um, teams are travelling the country and, and going you know, cross-country north versus south rather than waiting until until the postseason um, for that to happen. What do you think about the viability of that as an option? Uh, do you think it's you know, too difficult because of the costs that are involved and the time that it takes? Or is it something that you would like to see uh, because actually the, it would provide a great level of competition which should aid the development of your players? Well, we do it now, of course, Sam, don't we? Um, surprisingly enough, the only truly national league at the moment is the under-16 girls. Um, where... I think there are nine teams now, maybe ten teams in the under-16 girls. It's truly national. Um, it is very difficult for travelling, very time-consuming for the children, um, very expensive. Um, but 
the alternative there, certainly with that under 16 girls, is that you go north and south and the competition that you would get in either north or south, I can't, I can't really speak for the south, but certainly in the north, um, w- wouldn't extend the better clubs. If there are two or three better clubs in the north, um, it, was, it wouldn't extend them. Um, so the solution to BE uh, a couple of years ago was to go national with the under 16 girls. So last weekend, uh, not last weekend, the weekend before, we had an under-16 girls game at our centre and team from Brighton right. uh, week before that. Did you know that, Sam? I didn't, I didn't, know. To be honest, I oh. am not on, I'm not as on top of the female side of things as I should be. Um, <laughs> and I'll put my hands up and admit that. OK, well, I'm coaching females now and that's a, that's another story. <laughs> right. Um, uh, yeah. Um, yeah, no, so uh, we do have that last league and, and most of the clubs... Uh, majority well, certainly would be from the south. So you've got Brighton, you've got Ipswich, you've got Haringey, uh, you've got Southend, uh, you've got uh, Seven Oaks. Uh, so off the top of my head, there's five who are based down south. Um, and uh, over the weekend, our girls were down in Haringey. So it's a seven o'clock start in the morning, so one o'clock tip and back whenever. Yeah. Heck of a commitment. Um, but it's the the, the, the alternative is to play ball basketball. I would have thought that if you're going to do that or try it, uh, um, I would have thought you would do it at under 18 boys or something like that where the kids are a little bit older. Um, uh, but in theory, it's good. Uh, I can only imagine our under 18 boys improving significantly if they were to play the Southern teams on a regular basis. Um and maybe maybe under eighteen boys, it should, they should have a tryout at under eighteen boys and move on from there. Maybe under eighteen girls, but it, it does occur now at a under sixteen uh, girls level. Okay, so um, jumping back to your, I know we're kind of jumping around a little bit, but jumping back to to your story. So you kind of uh, you you left uh, Ellesmere Port Panthers, as we're calling them, um, and went back to Manchester. And so, around what sort of time was this, and what was your what was your next steps uh, within within the game? Uh, I think that was the. Uh, I think the reason I moved back to Manchester is because um, Manchester United were just getting into basketball, and you, you remember that time, Sam, I presume. Well, I've been told about it by people. Uh, okay. I don't personally remember it, um, but it's, well, that was actually linked with the football club, right? It was linked with yeah, it was linked with the football club, and the football club came in, I think, wishing to move their organisation um, to be like um, European organisations, whereby uh, you don't have a soccer club; it's a basketball and volleyball and what have you, and, it, and it's all together. Um, and I think United went through a stage where they thought that would be a good move and viable. Started a, a basketball program senior basketball team played in a local uh, venue called Stretford Leisure Center packed it out good standard good Americans uh, and I think it was asked to run the junior program or start a junior program at uh, at Manchester United um, with local kids uh, and I think that's where it all started in Manchester um, Giants at the time had an age group program uh, so they were going, and and United wanted to compete at that level. So when you when you started when you start a junior club, um, you know you're put in charge of, uh, you know taking over the the Manchester United junior side of things. 
what what is the process? Uh, you know, how do you go about finding finding players? Because you know, you're go, you're essentially you're building from nothing. You've got nothing, and all of a sudden you've got to build something. You've got to try and find a talent pool and um, and players that want to play and that can commit to the program. Like, what was your what was your process in in going through that? Well, we started at schools uh, because, as I said to you before, there, there was a, a uh, there was schools basketball going on then, um, quite strong league uh, in Manchester and. Um, Parts of Cheshire, so that was where we recruited our initial players. Um, I think some had come back from the Ellesmere Port situation back into Manchester because they're Manchester kids anyway. Um, and in those days, I can remember having under nineteen boys national league, under seventeen boys national league, and this was northern regional, um, and two under fifteen teams. And I think that's as low as it went. So I don't think there's any. Uh, under 14 or under 13 uh, boys National League in those days um, and we that was the start um, we, and then we got some kind of a reputation and then players started to come to us from the outside uh, I think some players moved to us from Giants because uh, we were going a little bit better in those days um, but it was the schools that, that, that fed us initially with players right do you know why they? Do you know why there was a switch from the under 19s and under 17s to under 18s, under 16s? Like why that happened in the first place? I don't know why, Sam. I don't know why, but it was definitely under 19s, under 17s in those days. Do you think that there's a? Uh, do you think that, like, if it was up to you, would you prefer to have an under 19, under 17, or under 18, under 16? Would you think? What do you think uh, kind of works better? Um, not really thought about that one. I, I'm comfortable with 18. I, I guess at 19, you've now got your academy, haven't you? You've got your um, yeah, uh, EABL, uh, under 19 level, uh, caters for under 19 basketball. And I guess at that at that age as well, Sam, the, 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 the better kids who are playing the EABL um, should be playing senior basketball anyway. Yeah. Should, you know, have gone beyond age group basketball. And I think they are to a large extent. Yeah. Uh, you will know better down south than I. Uh, than I. Um, so I, I, I can't think of any particular reason why it should shift back to 17s and 19s. I think I think B um, should be doing other things in terms of uh, development, but um, not necessarily a change there. So you you uh, lined up that question perfectly. So if if there were, if B were to do other things, what other things would you like to see B doing? I think you've got to come below under fourteen. Um, uh, I don't, I don't, don't know that you want to get onto girls basketball, but uh, we've got two girls teams now under fourteen level. No, let's talk about the boys. It's easier. So uh, under fourteen uh, boys basketball in the north now. We've got three national league teams. Um, the lowest of those three is very young. It's trying to compete against. Bigger boys and genuine under fourteen boys. Our boys are probably under under twelve, under eleven. There's no other competition for them. Uh, I know the Giants down the road have got four teams in the uh, under fourteen national league, so they're even younger than us at their bottom team. Um, can't think of any reason why uh, England basketball wouldn't introduce uh, a competition for under twelve boys and girls. Uh, um, Regionalised, it would have to be. Um, I don't think it would be a problem with boys' interest. I think I think the, boy, the teams out there who would wish to play in that competition, more difficult with girls uh, in terms of numbers. Um, but I think that's a gaping hole in our uh, competitive structure. Um, and you'll remember, I'm sure, Sam, that 
a couple of years ago, um, BE tried to introduce under 12s. Yeah. Uh, and the concept that they were looking at just wasn't, wasn't very good. Uh, and the clubs generally didn't favour it. And it never came to be. And since then, I've heard nothing. Um, but certainly, certainly that, I think that's a gap in the, in the competitive programme. Do you think um, one of the big, one of sort of the bigger issues of of developing talent out of the UK is that uh, kids just aren't starting young enough? Yes. Yeah. Definitely. Um, we, and the thing is, um, probably at at a basketball centre like ours, um, we have an advantage there in the sense that we've got court time and um, facility whereby we can start to run those uh, primary school leagues, primary school coaching sites. I think it's easy for us and for a few other, a few other clubs in the country. Um, but I think if you're out in the sticks, uh, facilities are poor. Uh, I think it's, I think it's that difficult to do. But without any doubt at all, um, it, we need to start very, very young. Uh, otherwise, we've lost, the, we've lost the, the, the better talented people to uh, other sports. And other sports, I think, are handling this really, really well. I think, I think a lot of other sports now are moving forward at a pace, um, much more so than basketball. Um, uh, uh, so I think we have to, we do have to start them very young. So at, at the at the Amici Centre, are you? What's the sort of um, younger session that you're putting on for for local? Are you doing stuff that's just independent of be just to try and provide opportunities for younger players? Yeah. Um, the youngest session we have is uh, we have a session on Saturday morning for uh, four, five, six-year-olds. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, yeah. Which which is a come and play session uh, and enjoy it. Uh, no more than that. But at least it starts them uh, dribbling a ball and shooting the ball to basket. Um, and then uh, we have our primary school, which is obviously anything from about um, year four, year four, five, six, four, five, six. Um, so that's a, a primary school program that we have, and a lot of clubs do that. Um, but we've got the advantage of having a, a facility. We don't have to fight for time on it. We don't have to pay for the facility. So that's a massive advantage. Yeah. Uh, uh, but yeah, the younger the better, without any doubt. Do you find uh, Do you find the younger sessions for the five six you know five six year olds are, are well attended and there's a lot of interest for them? Yeah. Yeah, yeah we do. Uh, and, I, and I'm sure other clubs do this just as well. I'm not. I'm not saying for a minute that we're better than anybody else here, Sam. Um, but we do. We have a primary school uh, session on Saturday morning, a primary school session on a Monday evening, and a, a primary school league uh, on a on a Friday evening. Um, and uh, yeah, no, they are well attended. Yeah, it's uh, it. It really. Uh, my sister. I've got a two year old, a two year old nephew, and uh, she. Uh, she it's down in Eastbourne on the southeast coast near Brighton, and she can take she takes my nephew every Saturday morning to like a a football session, which I, I attended when I was home a few months back, and um, it just amazed me that there's just all these kids that are you know between sort of one and a half and two years old, uh, and they're all just running around playing football, and I was just like, if there was something like this for basketball, and you know, little in little regional areas all over the country, it would make such a difference to uh, you know the de- the development of the game in terms of having kids that that have opportunities to play and that can get into the sport. Um, but yeah, it really blew my mind. And I have, you know, I don't, I don't have a lot of reference points outside of basketball because that's the only sport I've ever been into. But it was a real eye-opener for me um, just seeing how, yeah, seeing how football were doing things. But um, yeah, that's a, a side note. Well, we're not, as young, we're not as young as that, obviously, Sam. But that, that's, <laughs> that, that, no, that's intriguing. That, 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 that's good. But 
in many other sports now, like tech rugby, uh, you go down to, to a, a, rugby, a decent rugby club on a, on a Sunday morning, you'll see lots and lots of children throwing a ball around, um, rules to suit the age group, different rules to suit the age group, uh, just to get used to handling a, handling a ball. Um, and I think basketball is falling behind. I, I'm really impressed with many other sports, the Olympic sports, where... Um, there's been really, really good leadership there uh, and long-term plans in in many of those sports um, to move it on. Um, uh, and I think we're lacking we're lacking that in basketball. Yeah. Have you have you had a lot of conversations with the federations about um, you know about things like this about kind of where you feel that we're falling behind and things that you'd like to see the federation taking a lead on? Uh, have you kind of had any conversations or have, have there been any um, approaches from them to speak to you? Uh, and has there been any progress with that or or is it kind of been very much um you know independently you kind of just get on with what you need to get on with it uh, in, in manchester well i'm not suggesting this is a good thing sam but um i on a personal level i tend to be the kind of guy who stays away from um the politics <laughs> uh, and uh, national governing body and all of that. i'm not saying they don't have anything to do with it but um i'm, I'm more club-based i want to do the best I can for our, our club yeah. um, stay away from it I'm not suggesting that's a good thing uh, uh, by by any means but I do feel that the, there's been um, a very sad lack of leadership in basketball um, national governing body for a long long time uh, and I don't mean I, I don't I don't I don't mean that to be particular to any individual person, and, and certainly not the, not the person who's in there now, Stuart, because he's, he's not been in very long, but he's picking up the pieces of, I think, a real lack of leadership over the years, and other sports have had dynamic leadership, long-term plans as to how to move their sports forward, uh, and I think that's been sadly lacking in, in, in English basketball for many, many years. I think most people would agree with that, who, who are steeped in the game. Oh, for sure, um, for sure. Uh, uh, and I'd say I'd, 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 there's not meant to be personal to anybody, but if you take a span of 40, 45 years, uh, the time I've been in the game, over that span, in the main, leadership has been lacking. Uh, a plan, a long-term plan, has been lacking. Ambition and thrust has been lacking. And that hasn't helped at all, obviously. How... how um personally frustrating has that been for you like you know even for me I, I get very frustrated with British basketball sometimes I'm just like you know what I just I don't want to deal with it and I I'm in the wrong sport and the wrong job and I want to do something else and, and I've met so many people over the years that have become so disenfranchised with the sport so frustrated with the sport that they just opt out and obviously you're still here you know four decades later still doing it you know how have you mm -hmm. kept on going how have you dealt with the frustrations um kind of you know what's your mindset in approaching the sort of the bigger picture of maybe the lack of progress that the sport has shown over the years well as i said to you i've stayed away from that and i'm not suggesting that's a good thing but frustration certainly i've just mentioned something that seems to me um relatively simple um there's a lack of competition at under 12 level below, below under 14 level um, a lack of real com seasons competition. I know there are there are some competitions that occur in summer. Um, it seems to me it's easy to identify a situation there uh, and do something about it. Um, now that's frustrating because, from a club point of view, I know that to an extent we are underachieving because we're having to put boys 
in under 14 leagues who really shouldn't be playing in those leagues they should be playing in a in a younger league that's frustrating um why be don't address that problem uh, i don't know um but there's some simple things like that that, that can be addressed but and basketball people know that um so why wouldn't the the office know that and do something about it to be fair they've um uh, it's been a little bit chaotic i think england basketball um uh Stewart's come in uh he's made a lot of changes They've now moved to manchester and that was a big move i think uh, there's instability there and maybe maybe that will settle down and um and we'll move on from there. But I have to say, Sam, I think if you look at the uh, international results last summer, I'm talking boys now, um, and you look at the coaching that's going on at that level and with some of the Southern clubs, I think we are moving forward. Um, I think the College League has moved us forward. It's moved us forward in the sense that before that, and not that long ago, you'd have uh, club teams practicing twice a week. Yeah, uh, and that was all right. That was that was absolutely typical, and some practicing once a week. And that was typical, for reasons it may, it may have been uh, out of the control of the club's concern in terms of facilities and money and all of that. Um, but then the college situation came in, and um, and obviously players are going every day uh, and have appropriate programs to go along with it. Um, and I think that's been a big step forward. So we are. Ma- I don't want to say everything sound negative. I think we are making progress, um, but I think some dynamic, long-term leadership from the national government body um, would make a tremendous difference. Yeah, I totally. I completely agree with you. Um, so we're going to j- jump back into your story again. So uh, you, you've taken over the junior development of of Manchester United um, program, uh, and that. I, was it was it Manchester United where where John Amici first came? Yes, I think it was. Um, memory's not that good. It definitely wasn't Chelsea. You know, uh, I'd moved across there. Yeah, yeah. John must have come when uh, when we were at Manchester United. Yeah, I think uh, we 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 can't talk to you without talking about sort of the John story and and, and how that came about. So I'd, I'd love to hear um, kind of your memories of your early memories of, of John and kind of how that whole story evolved. Um, and came to life. Well, it, it's been well documented. This um, it started very late. Uh, basically, I think it started maybe sixteen. Maybe it was in the sixth form by then. But around that time, uh, big guy uh, went to a rugby playing school called Stockport Grammar School. Uh, hated the game. Uh, didn't want to play. Obviously, they wanted him to play because he's physical attributes, um, not interested at all. And I think there was, I think his mother went to the school, as I recall now, and said, look, he's not playing this because he's just started playing basketball. Um, he's getting into it. He's obviously got future there and the, the, he, doesn't, he doesn't like playing rugby. I, th- I think it, I think there was a, uh, an issue there and I think it was all resolved. Um, and so he came to our club, I think it must have been for two years, I uh, can't remember exactly. It certainly wasn't a lengthy uh, time that he was with us. Um, but I think, I mean, John's a controversial character, obviously. Um, <laughs> but I think it's forgotten um, what he did uh, with his career, having a late start, a terrific uh, career in the States at college, 
Um, what he did in the NBA, I think, has gone a little bit unsung, um, albeit for a shortest period, but tremendous success in the NBA. Um, and I think that the um, I think that is a role model in the sense that um, is a great example of hard work and graft and ambition and thrust. Because whilst he is six eight six nine, um, uh, he has got uh, some deficiencies physically. Um, he can't jump, um, and he knows that. Uh, and yet he went to the NBA and made the impact that he did. Uh, I think fundamentally the reason for that was how much he actually put into his development. It, it was a tremendous hard work uh, that he put in, um, made up for his deficiencies, uh, and I think is a, is, a, is a good example there to young to young kids about what you have to do to make it to the top in terms of effort and time put in and ambition. Um, I think I think is a a, terif- a terrific example of that. Uh, he did have he did have obviously some big assets as a basketball. He couldn't jump, but um, he was obviously big, a bigish yeah. level. But he's also smart. He was a smart player. Very, very smart uh, on on the floor. Could see situations very well. Uh, excellent passer, um, uh, and it's a little bit unsung in terms of exactly what he did at NBA, which is obviously not easy. Yeah. Um, so he, sh- he should take credit for that, without any doubt. Do Do you remember, uh, you know, some of the early coaching sessions that you had with him, and kind of what his ability was like, and what your early impressions were of him? Yeah, I do. Um, I did some individual sessions with him, um, and what came across was that after after I think initial period when he was finding his way and didn't really know what he wanted to do and where he was, but I think something clicked at some stage when he, he felt that he really could do something in this game and started to to really enjoy playing the game because he then be, started to become dominant. Um, so we did some individual sessions. He improved tremendously on the floor uh, in a in a team concept. Um, uh, very fast learner, very smart. Um, and what he did in one or two years uh, before he went to the states, or went to he went to prep school actually, um, was just tremendous improvement in a, in a short period of time. Did you feel from an early stage that he had a shot at being a professional, or did that not come until later? You know, you never know, Sam. Do you? It, it, it's easy. For, it would be easy for me to say that. Oh, yeah, I knew I was going to make it all along. Da, 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 da. And I wouldn't say that about any player. It's like you have a young player in your club, and he's under fourteen, and he's doing really, really well. And you think, boy, wait till he gets to under eighteen, we'll be in good shape. Then, da, da, da. it's not always that way, is it? Yeah. It, 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 kids lose focus. Physical growth is a factor. Attitude is a factor. Um, Things off the court are factors, and 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 then you'll have the lad who's an under fourteen and and not considered to be one of your major players, uh, and things happen uh, for the good there. And under eighteen level, he happens to be your best player. So it, I I never say about our young players he's going to be top notch at at a certain age, uh, and, and I never say that. So if you ask me, did I think John would get to the NBA? I was saying I I I didn't know. Um, I just didn't know. I knew he'd made a lot of progress. I knew that he worked hard. 
I'm sure at college he worked a dance like harder than he did in England because he had more time and he was more he was more committed. He was a bigger sport. He was a hero on campus. Um, so I'm, I'm sure he worked tremendously hard over there. But I I I, I can't say that I there felt predicted he would be um he would be an NBA player. No, he he did tremendously well. There's no doubt about it. He, he he often uh, you know talks about the impact that you had on his career and um, you know how much he, he kind of sees you as a, as a father figure. How you know how proud th- th- did it make you feel to see the success that he went on to and has gone on to now? Uh, you know even beyond his basketball career. Um, you know when you see the things that he's gone on to achieve and being one of the most successful you know basketball players out of England of all time. Yeah, uh, really proud. But I'd also make the point um, that. Uh, there's a lot of other kids that, that go through your program and you're associated with over the years who may not achieve that kind of success on the basketball floor, may not have the ability, um, but uh, they come down to the centre now. They, they play in the centre. We have a vets uh, session on a on a Wednesday evening. Um, lots of them are my ex-players, and you see what they've done with their lives, family lives, jobs, professions. So it doesn't have to be basketball. Um, it, it, you know, it, there are a lot of youngsters that pass through your hands who, who really, really impress you in, in terms of the way they've, they've turned out. And that would be equally the case with John. Um, it just happens that he, he, to a certain extent, has become a national figure with his uh, successes uh, in basketball. Um, and to a certain extent, he's, he's a kind of a national figure with the other stuff that he's doing, which pleases me because there's a life beyond basketball. Um, and uh, he, he's... Is doing well outside of basketball uh, now, and and I guess that's as pleasing as anything. The fact that he's doing that. So I'm aware of time, and I I, I don't want to uh, wrap up this interview before we talk about the club and um, and the, the sort of the formation of of Manchester and kind of the club that you're now involved with, obviously, and have been involved with for the better part of, of two decades. Um, so can we talk about the 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 beginning? Uh, the beginning of form- formations of the club, how it was set up and um, how it all came to be. Yeah. Uh, I think the United thing led on to um, what we do now. I'm not quite sure about the, the actual sequence of events here, but I know uh, that in 19, I think 1995, I stopped teaching. Um, I'd been teaching 30 years. I love teaching. I could have stayed in another 10, 15 years, no problem. Um but I wanted to do something else so that I wasn't looking looking back and saying, well, if I'd have done something else, I'd have missed my opportunity here. I just wanted to try something else. But I wanted to be involved with kids and I wanted to be involved with sports. Uh, basketball had been the sport I'd been in, so it was easy to continue there. Um, and I came out of teaching for about maybe three, four, five months. Um, didn't really when I came out, think about I'm going to go into basketball big time. Didn't think about that, but it was just obvious that um, I probably did that better than most of the things I did. Uh, I do. Um, why don't I start a club? Um, didn't set me long. I was getting a little bit bored, to be honest, Sam. I like to be busy. I was getting bored. Yeah. Um, I, I just wanted to um, wanted to do something. I thought, well, this is what I do best. Let's, let's give it a crack. Um, and people really don't realise this probably, there were three people at the beginning, it wasn't the Joe Forbes show at all Um, there was my wife who was 100% behind um, what we were doing 
and a great sounding board. Uh, and there was a, a guy called Graham Williams, yeah. a local school teacher at Burnage. I knew Graham well. I knew what it, I knew the way he handled. Uh, he was a real basketball nut, a player, coach at, at school. Um, I knew that he was the kind of guy to start a club with. Solid principles, um, handle the kids really, really well. He's not an in-your-face coach at all. He just has a knack of getting the best out of kids. Um, and so I approached Graham and said, well, "Why don't we start a club?" Um, and he was coaching at school. He had some lads at school. And and they they fundamentally were the were the starters of our first team. We entered the national league. This was about uh, 1997. Yeah. We went into Trafford Basketball Centre, which was a two court facility in Trafford, where basically we made the head teacher there an offer he couldn't refuse, in the sense that. Um, we, we went to him and said, look, we know you've got this two-court facility. Yeah, it, it, it wasn't two, two full-size courts, and the, and the floor was, you wouldn't believe how hard, just bitumen, rock hard. Um, and we said to him, look, we'd like to use it full-time. Um, nobody else goes in there in the evenings. Nobody else goes in there at weekends. What's it going to cost uh, to have it full-time? And as I recall, Sam, it was just under a £1,000 a month um, that it cost us. And I said, OK, we'll take it. And we had two under-17 teams to go in there. And that's all we had. They were in the National League. Um, and uh, Graham was taking one team. I was taking the other team. And we just started there from scratch. Um, community, uh, school visits, school assemblies, um, primary basketball, senior basketball. Jeff Jones came uh, on board with a senior team after about 12 months. Um, and uh, and it was full within 12 months it was full um, and we, we made it pay um, and then the opportunity came with the Meacher Basketball Centre the sports development officer in uh, Manchester said look I've got this site um, if you come into Manchester it'd be great I did want to go into Manchester although I have to say Trafford was absolutely great I love Trafford um, and so we had the build on um, on the school site that we're on now, Meach Basketball Centre, uh, and that, I think that opened in 2002. So when you first set up the club, um, was was the vision always to be you know as big as you are now in terms of having all the age groups and, and males and females and. Uh, or was it kind of, oh, let's just start small with, with, a, with a, you know, two, two under-17 teams and kind of see, see what happens? Or was it always, you know, the plan was always to build a bigger, a bigger community uh, club? Didn't have a plan, Sam. I don't do that. Um, generally, uh, it, ju it just took a life of its own. Um, I knew that at Trafford, we had to fill it to make it work financially. Um, so we had no choice there but to go, and what do we fill it with? Well the community and more age group teams and uh, the boys age group teams came along came along, I have to say came along pretty quickly um, excuse me we started a we started a, a small girls program that didn't really sustain so in Trafford we had no choice when we went to Manchester Obviously, it was bigger because we had three courts. Uh, we were in control of it. Um, I wouldn't say in control of a little bit more, but we had a bit more time in there. Um, 
and it just kind of took on a life of its own there was no on my part um long-term plan or vision to do what we did i think it was more children knocking on the door saying we want to play basketball and we had the facility say well come on play basketball and um and pretty early into that we started to win quite a lot of national titles um at all levels boys mainly and then we had a very good spell with girls um so i think it just grew some rather a a long-term plan yeah and then in terms of the, the financial side of things, you know, you said that the, the, that early venue was £1,000 a month, which, you know, is not a small amount of money. Um, so to, to fund the club, uh, how was it done through, uh, you know, through subs, through funding? Like, um, yeah, how, how did it survive, you know, in those early days? Well, uh, Maggie and I put in a little bit of money to start it off, um, knowing that we, we, we did need that. Um, and then uh, funds came in. Which by just by charging at the door, we don't charge a lot. We know we can't charge a lot in Manchester now. In Trafford, it's a little bit easier. It's a bit more middle class uh, in Trafford. But we then made it work financially. Um, so I, I don't think money has been a real problem at the club for many, many years. It's a bit trickier now than it used to be. And again, I don't want that to sound conceited. But when you have a a facility whereby um, you do charge for kids to come through the door, um, you make it work financially. Um, We do other things. We do all the the things that other clubs do. We fundraise and volunteers and so on. So we've got a great band of volunteers. Um, But it's not been a kind of continual year-on-year worry about balancing the books. We've always been able to manage that. Now, like, uh, inter- obviously, you, you know, you're a lot bigger. You're a lot bigger of, of a club than you were um, than you were then. You know, how is it? How is it that you are able to be financially sustainable and kind of support everything that you're doing? Um, you know, I see that when I come to any of your events and stuff, there's always widespread support from the uh, from the council. Um, you know, who are your other partners and kind of? I, I guess more from the interest uh, is from like, you know, let's say that there's somebody in a town right now that wants to set up their club. And they're trying to work out how they're going to actually make it work financially. Kind of what are the first yeah. ports are cool, and kind of what is the structure of of, of Manchester uh, as you as you run it. It's uh, it's very complicated. Uh, our finances, uh, Sam. Some I, I'm reluctant to go into, but I can say certain things. City Council have been unbelievably good, um, Manchester City Council. Um, for a long, long time. Uh, we went into Manchester, we were invited into Manchester by the council. Um, we're on council land with our basketball centre. Um, to, just to make, I can't speak highly enough of that. Um, but also, when uh, John Amici put the money in, which we had to find, and I think this is, this is um, uh, knowledge out there, um, he put in £250,000 um, as part of the big deal to, in order to get the centre built. Um, w- certain revenues accrue from that even now um, by the way it was built and the structure of the finances because it's, it is more than a basketball centre. There's a gym, uh, there's an aerobic centre, there's a bar, there's football pitches and there's, a, there's a, um, uh, a partnership and a relationship there whereby some finance does come to us on a regular basis and that's as a result of John's contribution right at the beginning. Now, I, I can't go into any more details than that, but that's, 
that's an advantage we have, Sam, that other clubs wouldn't have that advantage. Yeah. Uh, but when we were, I, I guess, I guess we, we've been quite lucky over the years. Um, when we started the club, right, going right back to the early days, we just did what other clubs do: fundraise. Uh, we actually were we were in Ellesmere Port and didn't have to pay for court hire because uh, Mike Burton was at a school where he could get the court free. So that was a big advantage. But we we just did the things that other people did. Um, but then we were looking at uh, Manchester United for, for however long we were there because they funded the programme. They actually wrote a check out and said, we want a, a junior programme. As I recall, it was something like seven or eight thousand pounds for the year. Um, so that was a massive help. So we didn't have to worry about paying for court hire, uh, the money paid for that. So we were lucky there um, and lucky at Amici Centre. So life has been very lucky. So, <laughs> in, ter- in terms well, of in terms of uh, figures, I know you just said you don't want to go into like too specific details, but you're able to give any sort of ballpark figures uh, in terms of sort of turnover of the club, uh, so we can kind of get a rough idea of the size of of the operation. Uh, Sam, it's too much. <laughs> I'm absolutely useless with finance. <laughs> no, I'm serious. I had no interest at all. I really don't. Okay. Uh, my wife handles that. Um, what I do know, so if you ask me what turn, you know, what's turnover, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not, not really interested in that side of it. Um, is that we managed to employ um, five full-time staff okay. um, on reasonable salaries. So um, there, there is enough money coming in, whether it's money at the door or money earned by John Amici's contribution um, to actually. Um, run the club and not have to worry too much although I have to say the last year or so um, it's been uh, tighter than ever before uh, various reasons there um, I won't go into but um, uh, yeah so we've been okay financially I've touched wood uh, I think we've been a little bit lucky there so the, when the when the build of the uh, Amici Centre was happening, did you kind of? I mean, how exciting was it to? Because uh, at that point, I mean, was was so that was two thousand and two, was it? Was it two thousand two, two thousand one that it was built? Two thousand two, it's May two thousand and two. So that must have been. Uh, was that built? That was built before Nottingham. Uh, was that built before Nottingham? No. It wasn't built before no. Nottingham. So no. it was, but it was still like so. It was one of the first, but it was one of the first uh, purpose-built basketball facilities in the country. Did you kind of yeah. realise at the time, you know, what an impact it could have on your club and how, how much of a big deal it would be for Manchester basketball? Yeah, I knew that, Sam, because I, I knew what had happened in Trafford and the fact that that was filled very, very quickly. Uh, literally within 12 months, it was full. That was five nights a week and week, a bit of free time at weekend because um, we didn't have as many teams as we have now playing, playing home games. Um, but I knew what had happened there, and uh, I just thought that the same thing would happen in Manchester. Been a bit more difficult because one's a middle-class area, and we're now, to all intents and purposes, in a city, uh, so there's less money around, uh, obviously in Manchester. So it's been a little bit more difficult. But it wasn't long before um, the current facility was full. Uh, we actually brought a lot of uh, what was happening at Trafford over to Manchester, teams were coming over to play in the, um, in the, in the leagues, uh, players were coming over, coaching sessions were coming over, um, so that, that was a great start for us, 
but just to go back to what you said before, because I think it's significant. Um, when we started, uh, there were two basketball centres, as I recall, in the country. Uh, I think the first one to, to open was the Barrow one, yeah. the Hoop Centre in now, France. Very few, not, not many people know about that one. Um, yeah. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah, go on. Still there. And then the second one, I think, was the Nottingham one uh, with the Priors. Um, I think it was two courts then. I think it was, I can't remember. Yeah, I think it was two courts. Yeah, it was two courts. Um, and I have to say that the, the, the people concerned there, uh, Pauline and Chris Pryor, Barrow were absolutely terrific for us um, in terms of advice uh, and how did you do it and what were the pitfalls and and talked about the build uh, and all of that. Um, we did we did we made a lot of visits to Nottingham uh, and saw Pauline. Uh, I knew Ian very very well. Uh, I think just thought they were tremendous in terms of the advice they gave us. So it wasn't as if we were the first. Yeah. We had other people to call on uh, to make sure we we didn't make any stupid mistakes. Right, so I'm aware of time here, so I, I guess one of the, the final questions I, I would like to ask is kind of um, what's in the future uh, for Manchester Club? Like, uh, you know, what are you? What is uh, in the sort of the short term and, and longer term vision? Where do you see it going? You know, are there any aspirations to have a team in the BBL? Um, yeah, where do you where do you see the club moving forward? Uh, to go back to BBL there, Sam. Um, I don't know if you know this, but BBL know this is. I looked at this quite seriously about two or three years ago I was dealing with the with the BBL um, it's something that I wanted to look into uh, I could see the advantages um, for our club um, didn't feel that the general consensus of the main movers at the club wanted to do this um, to, to the people that started the club Maggie and um, Graham Williams weren't very keen well, for good reason I have to say um, and I just didn't think I had the the backing uh, and the support at club level because it's a, obviously it's a big decision uh, to follow that through. Um, I I think there may be changes in Manchester coming up in terms of the overall concept of basketball top to bottom in Manchester, in the borough of Manchester, not Greater Manchester, in the borough of Manchester. Um, I think there may be a coming together because, remember now, Sam, we've got two three-court facilities um, three miles from each other Yeah. Uh, with the, with the um, national centre there. Um, and so there, there is competition there between the two, which really shouldn't be there. I think there should be a, a more, more coming together. Um, I think there's room... I've got to be careful what I say now, Sam, because I'm going to get in trouble. Um, I think <laughs> I think there's room for another BBL team in the area. Um, uh, it's not even in the area now. The, the Giants are playing Trafford. Um, yeah. You've got uh, a, a facility, um, the national uh, facility. Uh, they're just putting seating in now, I believe. I think it's 2,000 or 2,500, ideal size. Um, and it would seem, from what I hear, very, very little prospect of the Giants going in there. Well, that to me is an absolute waste. Uh, that facility deserves uh, a BBL club. I don't know if it can be done, technically. You, you probably know more than me. Um, but y y you need to put a BBL side in there. Uh, the WBBL, the ladies' side, already play there, but play in front of a, an empty house, 
but that to have um, uh, a BBL team in that facility would be absolutely tremendous for Manchester basketball across the board for kids starting to play uh, for community for age group programs whether it will happen or anything will happen but I think there needs to be a coming together so in terms of Amici we'll just carry on as we are as best we can um, competition is a lot tougher out there um, at age group level um, the NBL team has done really well over the last two years, been very, very successful, struggled a, a little bit this season. Um, we'll just carry on, and if there's a coming together across Manchester, then we'll, we'll, we'll look at that seriously in terms of is it good for our club and is it good for the area. Okay, perfect. I think that's, um, that's a perfect place to, to leave it. So, yeah, thank you so much for, for taking the time. Um, like I said before the call, we'll have to try and get you on for a part two at some point in the future maybe. Um, but thanks so much for taking the time and uh, yeah, I'm sure good luck with the future and we'll speak soon. Right, can I just say, Sam, are you still on? Yes, I am. Um, uh, thanks very much to you. I don't know, uh, obviously I know you're, you're on Hoops Fix. I don't know the, uh, whether that's a uh, full-time occupation or you have to have another job or make ends meet, but um, I think you've done a tremendous job for basketball um, across the board. Uh, maybe unappreciated at times, but um, I, I'm sure a lot of people in basketball appreciate that, and I think you've done a great job. Thank you. I really appreciate uh, your kind words, so thank you. You are listening to the Hoops Fix podcast, the official voice of the UK's largest basketball website. Visit hoopsfix.com for exclusive news, videos and more.